Hey, hey, podcast listeners. If you've been loving the show, chances are you love seeing me in person as well. I just came off of a great week in Las Vegas as well as here in Chicago speaking at TravCon and the Forward Summit collectively. And the Startup Hype Man Roadshow rolls on this week, September 20th, Thursday night. We'll be doing a live podcast recording at the Enterprise Sales Forum hosted at the Intercom Chicago office. After September 20th, it's on to Patriot Bootcamp in Denver, Colorado, September 29th, delivering my How to Not Suck at Pitching Your Startup workshop for the military veteran entrepreneurs in attendance. After that, October 15th, it's the 2112 Incubator right here in Chicago, Illinois, again delivering How to Not Suck at Pitching Your Startup, and then that same workshop, which is fun, fantastic and awesome if you have not been to it yet, and super informative, I'll be doing How to Not Suck once more October 17th in Ann Arbor, Michigan, up at the Spark Incubator in Ann Arbor. Very excited for these upcoming dates. I hope to see you at one of them, starting with... This week, September 20th, the Enterprise Sales Forum. It'll be a live podcast recording. I'll be alongside sales guru Jeff Badgerick. We'll be talking about different ways to pitch and sell and doing a little fireside chat uh, conversation as part of it as well. You can learn more and grab in more information and tickets and links to all of these dates at startuphypeman.com speaking. StartupHypeMan.com slash speaking. On now with the show. Well, it makes sense if you're you know, trying to maximize the sound. Yeah, yeah. The wrong way, I'm sure. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, a.k.a. The Raj Nation. I am your show's host and the founder and creative force behind Startup Hype Man, helping startups everywhere build their hype by creating a message that sings. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. It's about the mindset, processes, and strategies to help you build a badass company. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation to join our tribe at StartupHypeMan.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of this show, getting an email in your inbox every single week when we drop new episodes on Mondays. You'll also get my weekly thoughts, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your hype and create a raving fan base. All right, let's dive in now to this week's conversation of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome, everybody, to Discover Your Inner Awesome. Today on the show, we have Sarah Doherty. Sarah is the co-founder and chief technology officer of Telehealth Robotics. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Our topic today is how do you convince others of your vision? Why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? You know, we're focused in an area where 
a lot of uh, current stakeholders have operated the same way forever. Uh, there's a lot of entrenched values, entrenched ways of delivering services, um, entrenched ways of delivering value to patients and providers and administrators. And so it's been incumbent upon us to think about if we're going to sort of change that workplace dynamic and bring a technology that we think can really revolutionize the delivery of healthcare. Uh, we have to be really convincing and help people understand that, you know, the future that they, you know, think is coming and that they see coming is really now. And we have a technology that uh, can really enable their advancement to that future of more efficiency and more value in the healthcare space. Well, and I'm, I'm really excited to, to dive into this more and, and learn more about telehealth robotics. Before we do that, let's learn more about who Sarah Doherty is. So let's, let's, let's kind of take it back to the early days. Where, <laughs> where did you grow up? And did you find like growing up at an early age, were you having to convince people of things all the time? Um, that's a great question. So I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago. I was originally born in Boston, but um, my mom's family was from the northern suburbs. And so when the uh, market, you know, kind of wasn't doing great in Boston um, in the late 80s, early 90s, my parents decided to move to Chicago for some new opportunities with their work uh, and really became a wonderful home for my family. Um at an early age, I have two older brothers, well, a twin brother who's 20 minutes older than me, and an actual <laughs> older brother. Um, and, and I'm uh, sure I'm sure he rubs it in your face that he's 20 yeah, minutes older, right? That's he, exactly he plays right. the age card on you. Yes. <laughs> and I would say that I had to uh, toggle between being convincing uh, and charming and also being commanding in that role as a younger sister, um, you know, kind of getting them to do things with me, which, you know, wouldn't be necessarily as fun as doing things with each other. Um, and also, you know, just kind of making sure that my voice was heard um, since I was the sort of odd person out as the youngest and, and also as the only girl in our family of, of five or three children. So, um, so that's maybe where some of that persuasive tendency started. Yeah, I know. I, I would imagine as, as the youngest and then the, the only the only girl in the in the family you're kind of always running up against like my opinion matters kind of thing and like no listen to me right yeah well I will say my parents were very encouraging of each of us to kind of have that voice and have our own interests and you know as we got older I think that really um gave us a lot of confidence uh, and I would say if there's another thing that I really got from my upbringing that's been helpful as I started a business today it's that my you know, parents were really affirming in us taking chances and trying out new things and um, progressing and advancing and having sort of a growth mindset uh, with everything from academics to extracurriculars to sports, um, even things, you know, sort of we pursued on our own. Um, so, you know, when I started looking at engineering um, and being really interested in math and science, which was a big part of my early years and motivation for the work that I do now, you know, my parents weren't engineers at all. My dad had done some science. He was a geologist, but they were really encouraging. They helped me research all these programs. They helped me visit all these schools to figure out what the right fit would be. 
Um, so, you know, that combination of needing to be persuasive to make sure my voice was heard, but also um, having it be heard and, you know, sort of encouraged was uh, sort of a big part of, you know, why I feel confident doing the work I do today. Well, and let's let's kind of unpack that a little bit more. Do you recall what initially got you interested in math and science? And, you know, you, know, you mentioned your parents have, you know, some have a science background, but um, was it parent encouragement saying, hey, do what we're doing? Or was it something else? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, uh, they, my, my mom was a banker um, throughout her career and now does nonprofit work. And my dad was a geologist, but went back to business school and, and then kind of pursued a business or a career in technology and on the business side. And so, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of background in science. And, you know, really, honestly, it was a lot of my teachers. So I had a really great um, series of teachers growing up who were, you know, tough on me, but absolutely really encouraging. I would say I had a really magnificent fifth grade teacher um, who encouraged me not just in math and science, but also in writing and reading. I was, I really loved to write. I um, spent a lot of time learning languages growing up. So it wasn't just math and science, I would say, but you know, when you're you're a woman and you have some ability in math and science, there's a lot of encouragement that comes <laughs> with that. And so I think in addition to, you know, really enjoying reading and writing and languages, um, that was something, you know, that my um, calculus and physics and other teachers, particularly as I got into high school, were really encouraging of. Um, and, you know, my parents were super encouraging, helping me get to more advanced classes, taking classes at the high school when I was in junior high, um, all of that, you know, kind of driving me around to where I needed to be to take most advantage of, of what the school system had to offer. Yeah, so, and, and sort of along those lines, you know, I'm, I'm, I personally am much more of like a qualitative uh, type of person than quantitative. I'm very, what's the creative side, right brain? Uh, uh, left brain? Left brain. I I, know, I, whatever half. I, I, think, I think it's right. Whatever half of the brain is the more creative side of things. You know, okay. I was very yeah. drawn to to the writing classes in school and everything like that. But I actually also really liked math. It, not all of it came natural to me, but once I like put the time in and figured it out. Like what I really liked is that there's just some really basic rules and, and, and science too. Like I I was terrible at chemistry, but I was fascinated by it. Um, Physics. Initially, I sucked at it. But then when I realized I was like, oh, wait, they're all just is there's like these like five basic principles. And then everything just stems from that. No pun intended stems from that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what made me be like, oh, OK, once you kind of learn the basics, the rest of the things not are not easy, but they just start to like fall in place. Is that sort of how your brain works where you're like, OK, there is these foundational principles and then everything else just is an element of that foundation? Yeah, so I would definitely say in some part, yes. I think I find the, um, you know, kind of infrastructure of, of math and science pretty um, almost affirming, like, you know, exactly like you mentioned, there's building blocks, you, you know, kind of learn the essentials, and then you're able to sort of go from there. I would say I really enjoy solving problems. So having that problem solving mindset um, and enjoying, you know, kind of being in the thick of solving problems was a big part of the reason that I enjoyed math and science and also enjoyed engineering, which, you know, is sort of one step above that. 
taking all of these different disciplines and bringing them together to solve even larger problems. Um, I would say actually that a big part of why I can do the work that I do, in addition to having the foundational knowledge in math and science and engineering, is also because I really enjoy you know, kind of reading and writing and was able to handle the ambiguity of qualitative learning and, um, you know, sort of qualitative uh, execution of tasks. So, you know, when you're writing a paper or you're reading a book, there's, a, it's open to interpretation, right? There isn't a formulaic way of going about a proof, you know, just like it would be in math and science. And, you know, I, there's a lot of ambiguity, as you know, that you, you know, kind of have to dissect and you have to build comfort with when you're an entrepreneur and you're building a business. And so I think, you know, spending a lot of time, you know, even through college in classes where I was required to do a lot of interpretation and analysis um, and sort of think uh, in that way, qualitatively also, really helped. And actually, when I went to Penn, which is where I went to school for undergrad, I was I started at Penn in a dual program between the the engineering school and the College of Arts and Sciences. And I thought that I was going to do like a major in international relations and biomedical engineering. And then I got to school and I realized that I it would be very difficult to do that and study abroad and row crew and do all the other things that I wanted to do, but that I could satisfy my thirst for writing and reading and international study through a couple of classes. And the nice thing about Penn is that it's really interdisciplinary oriented. So I studied abroad in Switzerland, spent some time learning language and, and you know, kind of doing reading and writing and also doing engineering there because they have a really great engineering school. Um, and then I also ended up taking a dual program in the business school because I sort of realized, which has now come to fruition, that I was really interested in taking the foundational principles in math and science and applying them to the business world through entrepreneurship. Yeah. And as you talk about this, to me, what I'm, I'm hearing the skill set and traits of a very well-rounded entrepreneur, because there's a, you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs who they know the tech side very well, or they know the financial side really well, or they know the marketing side really well, but then they're really weak in the other areas, which is why, you know, why you bring on team members and things like that. But it can also be cases where it creates an ego in a bad way. Sure. Um, where you're like, no, I created the thing. I know, I know exactly what I'm doing, even though you don't know what you're doing in the other areas. So, you know, as you say those things, I'm hearing very well-rounded, uh, knows, knows enough in the different areas to be able to speak about it, but then potentially also be like someone else needs to manage it at the same time. So given that you, you know, you were working on the qualitative and the quantitative side at Penn, you talked about this love for problem solving. Were you in college, thinking to yourself, because because your first step after college was starting telehealth robotics. So in college, were you thinking I'm training to be an entrepreneur or did that come about in a different way? Yeah. So there's actually a really incredible program in at Penn between the business school and the engineering school called Engineering Entrepreneurship. And it's an accelerated series of courses in things like finance and accounting and marketing, you know, learning to be persuasive. And as, as an engineer, like you mentioned, which, you know, for a lot of engineers, they're just not interested in, you know, convincing people why their technology works or why it's important. They just know it does and they're ready to bring it to market. So it was a really incredible program uh, that I'm still in touch with the professors who taught it. They've been incredible mentors and, you know, sort of helpful um, providers of advice over the course of the time we built our business. But I started that program when I was a sophomore at Penn, and they are really in that scenario rigorously 
training you to be able to bring products to market. It might not, you know, sort of um, end in you starting your own business. You might be an entrepreneur or, you know, you might be a product developer, but it's not just about sitting in the engineering school and learning how to, you know, kind of um, uh, think about technology and have the foundational principles. It's about, you know, bringing those technologies to market. So, we did a, a series of courses where we had to build businesses in four months. Um, and it was the most work I've ever had, you know, beyond the six hour labs and the, you know, chemistry and physics and all that. This was, these were some of the most difficult courses I had to take because uh, they required a lot of team time and a lot of effort, you know, as you know, which it is to build a business and you're also, you know, taking all these other classes. So, so I would say yes. You know, the interesting thing about going through that program was there weren't a lot of other biomedical engineers who were doing that, largely because, you know, um, I think there's there are not a lot of biomedical engineers who then go and start their own medical device company. And I had a lot of back and forth with my professor, who I admire and respect about um, about the difficulties of doing this kind of business. And, you know, as I was thinking about going through this program and looking at job opportunities and really hoping someday that I'd be in a position to start the kind of company that we've started, you know, he was also trying to give me some helpful critique and feedback about, you know, the difficulties that that, that requires. But, they did a really great job in addition to our coursework of bringing in guest speakers. So people like, you know, FDA regulators and medical device experts, you know, in particular disciplines that we were interested in to help us get a better sense and a less uh, idealistic sense about what it might take. So, you know, I would say in short, to answer your question, I hoped that at some time post-college, I'd be in a position to start a business like this. It wasn't clear to me that it was going to happen right away. Mm. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that if that's of interest. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you did dive into it right away. And, you know, we're going to start now to get into more of like the weeds of the topic, which is around convincing others of your vision. Uh, before we do that, I'm curious to know, because when I hear someone coming straight out of college starting a business, I know anyone who's, any entrepreneur who's listening to this is always curious to, you know, most people are thinking, I need to make money right out of college, which is why most people don't start a business right out of college. So, like, what were you doing for income? Or like, did you get a grant for the, to, to run this and you were able to take some of that as salary? How were, how were you surviving as a person? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's a great question. So, when I graduated from college, I had that same perspective. Uh, I actually had a consulting job lined up in New York City and was going to start there uh, in the fall. It was a company I had done an internship with, you know, the summer between my uh, junior and senior year. And I'm sure no one thought you were crazy for turning that down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a little bit of a, a story there. So, you know, I like you mentioned, I had had internships, you know, every summer that paid me pretty well. And then I had this consulting internship and I really enjoyed it. And I had gotten to that place largely because I felt like it was one of the jobs that combined this growing interest I had between business and technology. You know, I had done uh, jobs where I was in a research lab. I had shadowed physicians. I'd done academic research. I worked for L'Oreal and did product research and development in their engineering space. 
Um, and then I got to this consulting job and it was healthcare strategy and management consulting. And I had an opportunity to work directly with pharmaceutical companies that were developing biotech products and help them think about what their pipeline should look like, how they should develop, and then how they should market. And it felt like the best combination to me of all of the interest areas I was developing, short of, as I mentioned to you, starting an actual business myself. Uh, over the course of the summer before I was supposed to start that job, I had a fair amount of time off and I, you know, came back to Chicago cause I'd spent most of my time while I was in college in the Delaware Valley in New York city, you know, doing internships and, um, you know, kind of studying abroad, et cetera. And I was kind of rebuilding my network and started talking with my current business partner about this idea of, um, thinking about what we saw was a really exciting convergence between low cost robotic systems, highly capable sensing systems, people's uh, um, interest in and ease in using telepresence, you know, with like Skype type technology. And then this growing concern with the Affordable Care Act that there would not be enough physicians to provide care for the growing number of individuals who'd be insured and then, you know, kind of be more oriented towards getting care for a variety of ailments. And so we started talking about this concept and I had um, my start date was delayed for my consulting offer. It was 2010 and they were just starting to kind of come out of the recession. And so I had an opportunity to kind of take a little bit more time and build this up, this business idea and a business plan. And, and then we decided to go for it. So, um, you know, you asked a great question about money. My business partner and I decided that we would take three to six months to build this business plan, figure out if we could work together because we'd never worked together before. We just um, had some mutual acquaintances that had, you know, kind of hooked us up, but um, had never really done, you know, any meaningful, you know, kind of value driven work together, let alone, you know, spent this much time um, working in close proximity and under these high stakes. And so we gave ourselves that time. And uh, at the end of that time, we were able to raise some outside funding, actually. Um, and so we decided that I would come on full time to the business and that a portion of that funding would go to my salary. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so that was what enabled me to, um, to go for this and do this within that first year after graduating, largely, you know, because I was gonna be able to support myself and, uh, you know, be an independent person after college. But you know, you're right, it's a really difficult decision to make. And I talk to people about this all the time. I do a lot of mentoring of uh, college students, graduate students, you know, professionals who are thinking about starting a business or joining a business. And, you know, we were in a particularly helpful position as a hardware startup, because there wasn't any way we could get going unless we raised money. And so when you're in that position, you can bake in some other costs um, that are reasonable um, for developing out product, especially because I had a background that would allow us to develop some of our core value into mm -hmm. the business. But, you know, if you are developing a product that has a shorter time to revenue or, you know, doesn't have um, a hardware component, it can be really difficult. And, you know, you mentioned grants. That's also something we've made a lot of use of over the time that we've built our business and built a lot of value without giving away a lot of equity. And so that's something, you know, especially for people who are coming right out of college or still kind of in student status or young person status have a lot of access to. Yeah. 
So can you give the overview, you know, like the elevator pitch of telehealth robotics? You know, we've been like touching on it a little bit so far, but I don't think the listeners yet really understand, you know, what what is your company? Yeah, so we build a hardware system and a software system. So the software system can be logged into anywhere in the world by a range of different service providers. So it could be a tech, it could be a nurse practitioner, it could be a... Uh, physician, you know, anyone who, you know, has a range of different skill sets in the healthcare space, depending on what the patient needs. And when they log into our software, they are provided with an interface that uh, includes telepresence, so a Skype type technology for chat uh, to be able to connect with the remote patient in real time. And then they also have a series of control mechanisms. And those control mechanisms allow them over the internet to control a robotic kiosk that has a range of different potential um, formats. It could be a tabletop setup. It could be a cart-like setup. It could be uh, as big and involved as a phone booth type setup. And in that hardware setup, there's also video conferencing capability for the remote patient. And then there's a series of robotic systems that act like hands to maneuver medical devices so that the provider can literally extend their reach into the patient's environment to do things like remote ultrasound, eventually remote ear, nose, and throat exam, a range of different services without anyone on site. So as the remote provider who could be stationed in a place like Chicago is uh, operating their interface, their patient who could be stationed in Bombay is uh, receiving diagnostic services without the need for on-site personnel. So this isn't a self-care option, and this isn't a automated option. You're interacting with someone in real time, remotely, who's using their software to control the hardware in your presence and do a full diagnostic exam. Back with more Discover Your Inner Awesome in just a moment, but first, are you an early stage startup If so, you're probably running on the messaging treadmill where you're trying to figure out how to pitch your company, how to tell the story, how to communicate, market, and sell this thing that you've built. But for every step you take forward, you get pulled back one just like you're on a treadmill because you're either too in the weeds, too technical, or your attention is pulled in too many different directions. Oh, and on top of that, You're facing the everyday mental crisis of being an entrepreneur where you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I should have listened to my family and just gotten that safe and secure six-figure job. Guess what? It's time to get off the treadmill. Introducing Hype Man Academy, my brand new affordable equity-free virtual accelerator designed to build a marketing playbook for your startup so you can confidently pitch investors with a clear and compelling message and go out and market and sell to get your first 10 or 20 or 30 customers. Hype Man Academy is a weekly live online workshop where you work alongside your fellow founders, support and help one another, and get one-on-one access with me through virtual office hours. For information on joining the next cohort, visit startuphypeman.com slash hypeman hyphen academy. That's startuphypeman.com slash hypeman hyphen academy. Fill out an application and let's discuss. Back now to our regularly scheduled programming. There's a lot in this, right? Yeah. Um, and I know 
you know, for anyone who's pitching investors or even just pitching customers, when you hear no, like the default reaction is, oh, they just don't understand our vision. They don't understand what we're working towards. You'll actually even see it a lot on Shark Tank for those who get who don't get a deal when they do the little interview afterwards. They'll be like, you know, they just didn't understand it. They didn't understand the vision. And in my head, I'm always like, well, that's because you didn't explain it the right way. Um, so communication is key here. So as we as we start to like really unpack this, let's let's start here. You are, what you are effectively doing is making an effort to, I don't even want to say, I don't want to say replace doctors, but have machines do the work that doctors can do. And you talked earlier, like there's a shortage, so it's not replacing, it's an assistance too, because there's not enough doctors that can treat all these people. So you're having a machine do work that people are used to having a person do for them. So let's start here. What is the natural like response and feedback you get, uh, like or the objections I should say, when you talk about your product in your in your company? So that's a great question, and I think there's a couple different parts there. <clears throat> the first part that I want to address is what generates those objections and the burden that we feel and know that we have to make sure people understand what we're doing properly. So. I would say the biggest objection that I hear is that concept of replacement. And actually, there, you know, when people write about us or there's a feature done about the work that we're doing, there's a lot of effort that we take to help people understand what the process here is and what the interaction capability is. Because um, I would say the key piece for us to drive home is that we're not replacing physicians. We're not doing self-care. We're not doing an automated service. And in fact, we've published a lot of, um, you know, kind of clinical journal articles about how experienced physicians and healthcare providers have even more efficiency and control and better diagnostic quality when they use our technology. But it requires that they have that expertise and know-how because that drives their ability to get better results. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would say that's the biggest objection I hear is the concept of replacement. And then, you know, sort of like we've been talking about this whole time, it's on us to help people understand and really convince them that what we're doing requires expertise and requires individuals who, <clears throat> excuse me, are interested in and interacting with patients. So, you know, I think one of the other big objections that people have relative to robotics and technology in the healthcare space in general is that a big part of why providers do the job they do is they're interested in interacting with patients. And we've taken a lot of pains as we've developed our interface to work with physicians and providers to make sure that the interface is intuitive so that they're most freed up to have a good interaction with the patient who's remote, right? Just like you know, you and I could speak over telepresence, and if I'm not otherwise distracted, I could have an interaction with you that allows us and helps you to understand how I'm feeling and, you know, sort of how, what I'm reacting to. It's the same experience we want physicians and providers to have with their patients. And so we've uh, taken a lot of pains to make sure that the control interface allows for that. So, you know, I think there's a lot of misconception in the world about the way robotics are thought to replace or um, get rid of jobs or take away the value of education that highly skilled individuals uh, have gone through. The other thing I think that's really been important 
for us in um, sustaining our progress and and allowing us to convince individuals uh, in each new setting, you know, we're approaching them in is building this group of evangelists for our business who understand and identify with the value proposition, um, particularly people who are in the healthcare space and could be using our technology, because you know it's one thing to hear it from us and hear you know like the dollar sign to chinging you know when you're trying to help someone understand what you're trying to do, and it's another to hear from someone who has that ethos, right? Who operates in this space, who's used the technology, or before we developed it, sort of using the technology, who understands how it could be integrated, you know, to make them more efficient. I want to repeat one of the things you said there because it's very important and I want it to sink in for everyone listening. You said if people aren't if people don't understand your vision, it means you're not communicating it well enough. You might have phrased it a little bit differently, but if people do not understand your vision, it means you're not communicating it well enough. It is not the audience's fault. It is on you at the end of the day to yeah. say it and explain it better. So as we as we dive further into that, a couple things that come to mind for me are you talk about value prop. And I think what's key here is really making sure that the value prop is communicated from the right perspective. Which because that's not only like what do you say over the course of a minute or in an hour long presentation. It's even like it's even going to drive how do you or, or direct how do you decide to name or phrase certain things? Because if you're looking at it from a certain perspective, like as you were talking, you know, one note I wrote down here was to me I'm thinking about like the industry you're in. If, if someone perceives it the wrong way, it's like, it's a scary thing, right? Like, you're, you're almost like, you're creating this future that if, if phrased the wrong way, people are scared of. Because, like you said, right, the first objection is, oh, you're going to replace doctors. Um, it's very similar in my mind to if you take driverless or self-driving cars. Most people, unless they're like tech junkies, when they hear driverless cars, they freak out. They're like, that's scary. I would never do that. I don't want that. And I was literally, I wrote this note down. I was like, what if we just started calling them passenger-friendly vehicles? Would that, think about how, like, what if that was the introduction to them instead of driverless or self-driving or automated cars? What if the first thing ever, like the whatever scientists came out with, they started calling them passenger-friendly vehicles? How much would that have changed people's perception? So, have you with telehealth robotics? Have you looked at naming convention in terms of getting your point across? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting point. You know, I think um, as we approach different stakeholders, so you know, the interesting thing about the healthcare space is. There are so many stakeholders that you have to satisfy, right? So uh, it's different than in the consumer space where you direct your product or your service to a particular type of consumer, B2B, B2C, et cetera. Um, you have to satisfy insurers who are going to pay. You have to satisfy patients who are going to interact with the technology and who are increasingly becoming consumers of this good or service. 
you have to satisfy providers because otherwise they're not going to use this mechanism to, you know, provide their service and it's going to sit, you know, kind of dormant. And then you also have to convince administrators who are going to be in charge of your sales cycle, right? And either purchasing or leasing the device. And so we think a lot in our, you know, sort of persuasive framework or convincing framework about who our particular stakeholder is at the moment, both within our space. And then as we've reached for financing and grants, also who supports us along our, you know, sort of way to market. So, you know, I talked about the stakeholders that are relevant just to the execution of the exam, and then a little bit to the finances of the business. But separate from that, we also have to satisfy our investors and grantors. And we have to satisfy regulators, right? So, There are so many different contexts in which we have to be really sensitive to the way that this is framed, the opportunity it presents, um, the protective capability that we have for, you know, people who want to maintain their jobs, who are, you know, kind of highly educated and should be valued for that skill base, for a fickle patient population that you know, is increasingly exposed to technology, but in a lot of scenarios and, you know, sort of depending on age range can um, be really frightened by advanced technology and, and the way that it allows them to interact with their physician. So yes, we think about that constantly. Um, you know, I think I'm trying to think of the sort of the best example. Um, I would say the most framing that we do uh, is for providers, just like, you know, you were talking about, um, you know, for drivers with cars and the best way we can describe it is to help them better use their bandwidth. So I would say the best analogy between what we're doing and a driverless car is if instead of the car being driverless, there were drivers stationed in a virtual call center environment and they were the ones driving the cars. Mm -hmm. Because the real value of telemedicine is virtual provisioning, right? So when we talk to physicians about the capability that they have to provide service, they don't have to just be sitting in their clinic They don't just have to be sitting in Chicago where they typically practice. As the regulation expands and, you know, kind of cross-licensing expands in the U.S. and beyond, a physician could sit anywhere in the world and deliver a valuable service to a patient. And then that patient could get access to a cardiologist right after they met with their nurse practitioner. And then they could get access to a nephrologist one right after the other because we have this virtual sort of environment where people can plug in to driving value in the healthcare space and not have to be in one physical location. So one of the biggest issues that patients, providers, insurers, administrators, all the stakeholders that I mentioned face in the healthcare space is connecting the right patient with the right provider at the right time for the right service. And even though we focus a lot on convincing language for each of those stakeholders individually, that's the sort of resounding message that we take to all of them to sort of drive home what the value of this is. Yeah, and again, it's, it's really all about, and the idea of communicating your vision is ultimately, in whatever scenario it is, whether it's getting, you know, in your case, whoever your stakeholders are, whether it's the investors or the providers or the, the insurance companies or the doctors, right? They're all, they all have their own like, unique message that they need 
told to them. But ultimately, what you're trying to do in each of these scenarios, what any company is trying to do, is say, we have a vision for the future, and here's why you need to believe our vision, or our future is, is the real future that's going to happen. Yeah. And one of the things you said that I think really helps with that is by talking about okay, who else already agrees with us, right? Like who's on board with us because that creates credibility. Another thing that, you know, I think about a lot and it's something that when I work with companies, it's, it's, it's part of what I'll put into the process is, um, and, and I, I'll tell you, I, I learned this from, from, of all places, Hamilton, the musical. I love it. Um, I, I guess the best way to like to approach it is to say like you have to create the you have to agree on the environment first like what is the state of today so you have to get people to agree on that before you can take them to the future because a lot of people love to go into sales meetings or whatever these meetings are and just go right into hey we're awesome we're great look at all these great things we can do to help you and that's how you scare people I would say the best. Uh, way we have to describe it is, you know, often when people, we come to people, especially when we first started the business and say, you know, we're interested in starting this. We think there's an opportunity here. People would, you know, kind of um, conjure up visions of George and the Jetsons, right? And yeah. what we'd have to help them understand is that the future is now, right? This technology exists. We can bring it together in creative ways and, and build some new um, technology on top of it that will allow us to take it even a little bit further. But the seeds of opportunity are there. And if we don't jump on them, you know, absolutely, this is going to be done. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot in particular in medicine, but certainly in a lot of fields, energy, finance, where people are, you know, kind of waiting for <clears throat> saturation of the market with a, you know, kind of technological solution before they really adopt it. I mean, we've seen that with medical records that are still not in all hospitals around the country and around the world. So, you know, I think to your point, it was incumbent on us to help, and it still is. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, kind of helping or trying to change the narrative around robotics and AI and machine learning and the opportunity it presents um, to advance our business, but also because I really believe in it uh, across many different industries to help people understand that there's so much opportunity those technologies bring that we're not going to jump from where we are to robots running the world. There's so much augmentative capacity they have, and we're very far, you know, if, if ever from, you know, completely having that takeover and to get away from the hysteria. Because, you know, I would say the trouble we have is once we convince people that the future is now, then it's a pretty short jump for them to like go to that hysterical <laughs> conception of what's, you know, kind of happening or what could happen in the world. Um, and the only other story I'll tell that's relevant to that is, you know, I think it's right that it's incumbent on the entrepreneur to help people understand their vision. And when you hear no's or you hear people not understanding what you're doing, it's a time to look inward and not look elsewhere. But I will say we had an early meeting with an investor about our business. And at the end of the meeting, he was basically like, you know, robots and ultrasound and remote medicine, it's like pickles and peanut butter. It'll never go together. This isn't the right combination. And there will be some people who don't understand the industry well, or don't understand what you're trying to do as much as you've honed your vision. So 
you know, I think the other thing that's important to remember, especially if you're bringing a technology like ours that takes a lot of convincing and, and is really trying to revolutionize a space um, to get a lot of opinions, right? Because it's easy to hear those first couple no's and, and feel like you don't have something. Um, but entrepreneurship takes a lot of support, a lot of, of, you know, kind of market research and opinions, a lot of knowledge about what you're doing and a lot of self-confidence. And that's really the driver of your ability to convince others if you, you know, as if you are confident in your vision and, um, you know, and are, you know, kind of able and willing to take that confidence and try and persuade others. I have one last question here before we wrap up, and, and it really comes from like a timeline perspective, because you started this in 2011, it is now 2018, technology has changed a lot since then, right? Like, the power of, you know, of a phone is so much better now than it was in 2011. I think 2011 was when the iPad first came out. So how has the change in technology affected the story you've, been, you've had to tell over time? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we first started, we were really concerned because robotics wasn't, you know, even something people really talked about. I would say that is... I mean, that, Uber wasn't even out there. There wasn't even yeah, like, why that and, Right. I mean, there were many technologies that have developed in that time. That I would say the entrance of AI, robotics, machine learning into, like, generalized vernacular was only in the last two and a half years or so, largely with the introduction of this concept of the fourth industrial revolution. So in those three and a half years proceeding, as we were building our technology, getting IP, doing uh, clinical testing outside of the US, starting to do our clinical testing in the US, starting to bring our first products you know, out to patients, um, we were concerned about sharing that robotics was part of this unless you know, people were really close to the business. In some ways, that was a mistake. You know, it was would have been better to help people understand earlier on. Once we started feeling more comfortable and, you know, started to get more protection around our ideas, there was a lot of convincing because, you know, we've got more of that George and the Jetsons type feedback. Um, and so our focus was more on proving that the technology could work because people didn't even believe that this kind of thing could be done. Uh, and then as we proved the technology could work, that sort of aligned, and we protected it, that aligned with this change in the way people were starting to think about and, and sort of the entrance of generalized understanding of, or at least some um, interaction with the term of robotics, even if you didn't really understand what that meant or it wasn't really affecting your industry. And so we've actually really been able to take advantage of that to show that we'd been working in this space for a while. We'd built a technology that worked, you know, using what we'd seen as an opportunity in this space. And so, you know, a lot of the people that were concerned up front, we were able to, you know, kind of bring in even further because we'd already proved out that we could do, you know, this type of work. So, um, the evolution actually of the technology has been really helpful to us. Um, and also the evolution of the narrative around the technology has been really helpful to exactly what we've been talking about this whole half hour, 45 minutes, which is convincing people that this is something that's coming and that we tried to be ahead of. And, you know, I would say the other thing that we constantly try to keep on top of and keep track of is how we advance our protective, um, uh, information and then also our technology to stay ahead of the advances. So one of the things we would never necessarily have considered right away would have been 
some of the machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies that we're integrating to help do some semi automation with the exams. And both because we would have gotten a lot of pushback from people remote operating and also because the technologies weren't as advanced. And then we, you know, those were kind of later additions, but they're things that were, you know, kind of integrating to help us keep pace as we develop the product. So this evolution is actually really exciting for us. Also the evolution in the telemedicine space and people being more and more comfortable and excited about practicing that way is really exciting for us. So we, you know, kind of hope to be, continually be a little bit ahead of that wave and then take advantage of it as it you know sort of blossoms and and our product proliferates before we wrap up can you let our listeners know where they can learn more about telehealth robotics uh, learn more about you and get in touch with you and your company yeah so um we actually are in the process of building a new website which is why i hadn't shared that with you um so uh in lieu of that i my email address is probably a great way to get in touch with me um Doherty at telehealth-now.com. Um, you can also message me on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter um, at telehealthrobot and at sdo6. We'll include all of that in the show notes as well, which you can grab from startupshypeman.com. Now to close up, we will end the show. We will end every episode, which is essentially a little bit of a summary. So um, I'll give our topic question today was how do you convince others of your vision? I'll give my quick recap answer, and then I'll toss it to you, Sarah. So how do you convince others of your vision? You know, really what I, what I pulled out of this that I, I really like is the idea of Understanding, understanding where your stakeholders, well, first off, understanding there's a different story for every stakeholder, and then understanding where they are, meeting them where they are first before you try and take them to the future. Sarah, how do you convince others of your vision? Um, you know, I think that's a great approach, and then I would layer on top of it that it's always your responsibility. Um, you know, to identify what different story those stakeholders need to be told, to identify a unifying vision that allows them to align because they're absolutely, you know, kind of all going to come together eventually and to take the feedback that you get as an entrepreneur and maximize it. You know, I, I will say that the biggest thing that's been helpful to us is, is trying to gather as many people in my corner who understand how to build businesses, who understand the healthcare space as I possibly could, especially starting a business, you know, early in my career and all that feedback and, you know, kind of processing it um, was really incumbent upon and has been extremely valuable to me. That wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the absolute best compliment you can give is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people can discover their inner awesome. And if you want to extend that compliment further, while you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you listen, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or the various other networks in which you can find this show. For full show notes, references, and resources, as well as access to the over 100-episode archive, visit the podcast official site, www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. And remember, for tips, strategies, and ideas on how to build up your company's hype with a message that sings, visit StartupHypeMan.com. Season 10's theme song is from Sir the Baptist. The song is called Dance with the Devil. 
It is off his album Saint or Sinner, which you can grab on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, and anywhere else digital music is distributed. That'll tie a bow on this one. Thank you again to this week's guest for joining us. I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to Startup Hype Man's Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. This a dance with the devil girl.